0: Is
1: the voice? Certainty of others. The life, love, sight, hearing of others.
0: Where is this voice? Coming from.
1: I see you also face to face.
2: This is Soundbox Signals, a podcast that brings archival recordings to life through a combination of curated close listening and conversation. Together, we'll consider how these literary recordings signify in the contemporary moment and ask what listening allows us to know about cultural history. Full-length versions of these recordings are available online in our spoken web archive at soundbox.ok.ubc.ca.
1: How curious you are to
2: I'm joined today uh, with three special guests in the studio. Our curator is Amy Thiessen, who's an honors English candidate at UBC Okanagan, where her thesis examines Sharon Thiessen's The Fire and offers a digital critical edition of the poem. Amy is an aspiring writer and teacher who plans to pursue a Bachelor of Education after she graduates. She's currently an RA and project manager for the Spoken Web Project. I'm also joined by Nancy Holmes, has published five collections of poetry, most recently The Flicker Tree, Okanagan Poems with Ronsdale Press 2012, a collection of poems about the place, people, plants, and animals of the Okanagan Valley in the southern interior of British Columbia. She's also the editor of Open Wide a Wilderness, Canadian Nature Poems from Wilfrid Laurier University Press 2009. She's completed work recently on a shirk funded project with research partner Dr. Camin Cartier of Emily Carr University of Art and Design called Border Free Bees, which harness the power of art to raise awareness and to develop initiative uh, to protect native pollinators, especially bees, in both the lower mainland of British Columbia and the Okanagan. We're joined today also by Sharon Thiessen, who's a poet, editor, and writer who taught English and creative writing at Capilano College, now University, in north of Vancouver, and who joined uh, UBC Okanagan's Faculty of Creative and Critical Studies as a professor of creative writing in 2005 and is now Professor Emerita. She's the author of nine books of poetry, the most recent of which are Oyama Pink Shale, The Good Bacteria, and A Pair of Scissors. Sharon's books have been widely recognized by an, numerous awards. A Pair of Scissors won the Pat Lowther Memorial Award. The Good Bacteria was a finalist for the Governor General's Award, the Relit Award and the Dorothy Livesay Prize. Oyama Pink Shale was a finalist for the Dorothy Livesay Prize and two of her earlier books were also finalists for the Governor General's Award. She currently resides in Lake Country, where she offers one day retreats called the Pinecone Writing Workshops. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be listening to an archival recording today from November 1986. And so without further ado, we're going to rewind um, and have a listen to that recording of Sharon Thiessen visiting Warren Tallman's class. So here we go.
1: Um, While while she's doing the work, I'll introduce her. uh, In one of her books, there's this line that I like now only the imagination carries forward. Uh, And so the progress of our mini-contemporary Canadian poetry series is now from Robin Blazer to Daphne Marlatt to Sharon Thiessen. As mentioned, contemporary Canadian writing stems in good part from the exceptional closeness of perhaps 30 Canadian poets a community, almost a city or polis, sociable, supportive, with active interests. I don't know where I get it, but I see Sharon when she's young, up in Prince George, in a kind of living room or sitting room that has a window seat. And she's reading in an an absorbed way. Yet when she's done, she's there because... What she's reading, no, when she's done, she's there because what she's reading is also there. A kind of near-far oneness.
2: Um, So we have our guest curator, Amy Thiessen, who's been working on this recording for um, a number of months now. Amy, can I turn it over to you to say something um, about what we know about this particular recording, when it was made, uh, what format it was on, yep. etc. and what date it was recorded. You to
3: turn it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this recording was recorded in Warren Tallman's classroom at UBC Vancouver on the tape object. We're told it's November 14th, 1986, um, and it was recorded on uh, reel to reel The occasion of the recording is Sharon Thiessen visiting his classroom, she gives a reading, speaks about her poetics, and also just teaches a number of lessons to the class.
2: Um, and she's also introducing, if I remember correctly, a manuscript that she's been working on called The Landlord's Flower Beds, which eventually is published as the beginning of The Long Dash in 1987. Um, Nancy, I want to go over to you and ask you what strikes you about what we're hearing on this introduction?
4: I really love that introduction. It's it's so thoughtful, and it's so um, it just seems to me so um, relevant to to poetry in general, as well as Sharon's place in you know in Canadian poetry. It was so interesting to me that he um, locates Sharon's work in this. Kind of burgeoning of a Canadian school, or or in the burgeoning of Canadian poetry, but he doesn't locate that school or lineage in um, you know as as a group of like-minded uh, or like-practicing writers, um, but rather he kind of locates it in this really interesting way that it's only the imagination carried forward that that he's that he's describing his. Um, you know, something about the very nature of poetry, you know, that Sharon is this poet that's aligned firmly um, in that realm of imaginative power and, and not with social function, poetry as having a social function, not poetry as identity, not not even aesthetics. It's just this imaginative power unfolding into language. And, he, and I think it's quite a beautiful introduction that way,
2: right? Sharon, does that ring true for you as well? I mean, he locates you in this kind of lineage of Robin Blazer, Daphne Marlatt, who've come to visit the class before you. You're the third writer who's coming to this class. Um, and he says, you know, there's there's this kind of group, this, this
5: tight-knit group of poets. What was that like for you? Does that, does that ring true at the time? Well, at the time, uh, when Warren said that, I was very, very flattered uh, by his um, placing me (laughs) in a sort of uh, line of of Robin Blazer, who was uh, um, a very dear teacher of mine for many years, and uh, Daphne, who was a friend and uh, a poet I really, really admired, and then me. And so um, it seems that there... There was the the, um, incursion of the uh, American poets in the 60s into um, Vancouver via Warren, uh, largely because of his hospitality toward these poets and their poetics. Um, And that inflected very much of the current writing that young people were doing. So we would get invited to these parties, but we were like a generation to half a generation younger. Uh, and so we didn't belong to the Tish group, although they were, you know, our, our admired kind of semi-peers. But we're at that time kind of forming another layer of of um, Canadian poetry within that polis or community that that Warren describes. And so I thought it was a very, very succinct way of declaiming um, uh, a kind of lineage or legacy, but of placing me um, very much in, in a line of writing that, as Nancy was saying, and as Warren said, um, values the imagination as the dynamic of of uh, poetry. And uh, so I was very, very flattered, very delighted um, by his image of me reading, which was also very perceptive on his part and uh, shows that he had read my work carefully because of the way that I, um, I inflect uh, what I'm reading and the voices of other poets and things that I'm um, even you know particular lines and things that i've taken from my reading so my reading is part of my writing is part of my reading and he recognized that yeah, yeah. so um, yeah it was it was wonderful
4: it's also kind of a romantic image isn't it like mm-hmm. do, do you ever see those calendars you know you used to be the reading woman
3: right no. you can get these mm-hmm. calendars and
4: they're all paintings of women reading books oh right yeah, so yeah. the the image mm-hmm. he has of you it mm-hmm. seems to be Um, I don't know, it's kind of this very interesting, beautiful image that I think I've read something and I don't even remember where, but that painters loved images of women reading because it speaks of the interiority of, of life. Yes. Right, and so he's imagining your interior life, right? Exactly. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love the
5: women reading portraits, especially those of Matisse. That mm-hmm. um, um, uh, yes, as I was saying earlier, it's a it's a beautiful image. Although there was nothing particularly, I mean, it was pretty hard scrabble <laughs> uh, at the time. Um, it wasn't. A, uh, an, idealized kind of environment in which I was doing this reading but he caught the nature of my literary imagination which was being formed at that time through books and reading
2: yeah I'm gonna take us from imagination to something a little bit more practical and to bring it over to you Amy um, Warren opens by saying "While she's doing the work I'll introduce her what is the work he's talking about
3: Right. So um, he's asking Sharon to, with on the chalkboard, which you can hear quite um, perhaps obnoxiously in the back of the recording, for her to write the titles of her published books of poetry on the board. And in other parts um, of the recording, he goes on to ask her to write certain words to teach the students.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's a. I mean, it's a historical noise now, right? Because we don't tend to have... Um, you know, chalkboards in the classroom anymore. The sound of the whiteboard marker on the whiteboard doesn't sound anything like that. So we get that really, I mean, you know, it's a very loud clack, clack clack because the tape recorder must be relatively close to the uh, to the blackboard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's making Sharon work. Nancy, mm-hmm. do you want to comment a little bit on, you know, when you have a guest poet in the classroom and you're teaching that kind of pedagogical, you know, what what's he doing in terms of facilitating? Um, and setting up that that visit.
4: I guess my first impression of the chalk was when I was thinking because the first time I heard it was when um, Sharon later on in this recording is talking about in her introduction about Persephone and it sounds like someone is writing her name, Persephone's name, on the board and I thought wow it's so wonderful that this oral experience becomes a, an experience of hearing an inscription of words, like that. that just felt so poetic to me. There's just one of those poetic mm-hmm. moments. Um, I don't think I ever really <laughs> ask poets to work when I invite them in, except to do their reading and to answer questions under interrogation circumstances. Um, but uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite wonderful how embodied he's making the reading. The poet, he's making you you know a living. Person in the classroom, and you're almost like his um, um, his assistant in some ways in this process of education, which is quite quite beautiful. It you know, is. it's like you're kind of more you're like a. If we could all have poets as TAs, yeah. you know, we'd have these beautiful moment poetic moments of you know engagement and mm-hmm. discussion and yeah, I thought it was quite quite lovely actually.
5: Yeah, there's something performative about it too, and and um, and something in it of of saying that you know we are together. It's uh, there's a, a sociability in addition to the presentation of a kind of professionalism um, and knowledge, and so it's it it accomplishes that gesture. You know, accomplishes. A whole lot of language about who we are, what our relationship is, not only to one another in our community at the time in Vancouver, the poetry community, but to poetry itself and that it is something that is serious and has uh, um, you know um, knowledge um, Im- imbued in its in its imaginings and um, there's a, a wonderful as I was saying earlier a dignity to the whole process
2: yeah I'm also I'm struck too by how in terms of the physicality of the pedagogy I mean you hear the um, the clack 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 of of the cl- uh, the chalk on the chalkboard um, but how quickly also, you become a teacher mm. in that moment, right? He's teaching, but you're teaching, yes. and you teach uh, the word Persephone, um, and you teach some of the you know the other keywords around that sort of constellate around the poems as well and set up yeah. the reading. Um, mm. In that sense, it's kind of like a very shared pedagogical moment. Yes, that yeah. I think Warren almost sets up right from the very beginning, right when mm-hmm. he's asking you to yeah. write the titles Do, write on the, the board.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, she does the work. Well, she, I'll she does the work. I'll 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 say this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um so without further ado,
2: why don't we have a listen to the poem that we've been about to set up? Chrysanthemum Perfume, uh, 1986. So this is
0: called Chrysanthemum Perfume. So, what now? 10:30, 11-ish. Cats crouching jewel-eyed under parked cars. Catalpas, a sharp lime green x-rayed by streetlights. Birds long ago preparing for the story of night. Torch songs. Chrysanthemum's huge white heads blooming through thin November ice against the fence along the path, home to Bluebeard. It was almost that bad. Through that one particular garden we had, 1967 or so, and Jamie Reed with the collected works of Lennon in the basement suite and the Narcs parked outside in a tan-colored Buick. The back gate on its new hinges neatly latched behind me, bitter scent of chrysanthemums grabbing like dry hands at my breath, as if they knew what I wanted to refuse would light my way up the porch stairs beside wasps asleep, in hexagons and dark forms of the police tilting wristwatches to streetlights and no mother anywhere.
2: I love this poem. So that was November 1986. Sharon, can I ask you to read the same poem today? Yes.
5: Chrysanthemum Perfume So, what now? 10.30, 11-ish Cats crouching jewel-eyed under parked cars. Catalpas, a sharp lime-green x-rayed by streetlights. Birds long ago preparing for the story of night. Torch songs. Chrysanthemums, huge white heads blooming through thin November ice against the fence along the path home to Bluebeard. It was almost that bad. Through that one particular garden we had, 1967 or so, and Jamie Reed with the collected works of Lennon in the basement suite, and the Narcs parked outside in a tan-colored Buick. The back gate on its new hinges neatly latched behind me, bitter scent of chrysanthemums grabbing like dry hands at my breath as if they knew what I wanted to refuse, would light my way up the porch stairs, beside wasps asleep in hexagons and dark forms of the police tilting wristwatches to streetlights and no mother anywhere.
2: Thank you. Amy, I'm gonna come to you. I wanna ask you about um, the image of the garden in this poem, Um, particularly uh, the chrysanthemums' huge white heads blooming through thin November ice along the fence, sorry, against the fence along the path. Do you want to expand on that The f- image of the garden?
3: Yeah. Um, what I like about the, sort of the description of a garden in this poem is that um, that's sort of the the imagery that comes to mind even from the, the title of the poem, and yet there's so much more to be interpretive or um, perceived Um, Below the surface, which I even think back to Warren's note of the near far oneness Mm -hmm. and sort of about being a student in this classroom or myself being a a listener now, um, about how there is this, the nearness in the poem of the garden and the setting. Yet there's this much deeper and further away sort of meaning.
2: The chrysanthemum is a strong image in this poem as well. Nancy, you were, um, I think, quite compelled by the, the the two lines, bitter scent of
4: chrysanthemums
2: grabbing like dry hands at my breath. What speaks to you about those lines?
4: You know, just in itself, it's a really powerful image, that kind of asthmatic response you can get to certain flowers, right, that you're allergic to. And of course, I'm a bit allergic to chrysanthemums, <laughs> so it sort of caught at me in the same way, you know, I think, it's one of the beautiful things about reading a poem is that certain parts of poems, you're sort of primed for, and they touch you and they grab you. And um, so I think that's, that was one of them. It just sort of it grabbed me. And, but, you know, thinking a little bit about what, what Amy was saying is that you have this kind of beautiful um, intrusion in that image into the inside Right, it's a beautiful image of the ice and the white chrysanthemum. It's almost like this origami kind of beautiful um, image, and then suddenly the flower it it enters you like almost something toxic, right? So it's this beautiful um, image that kind of um, explains exactly what you were just said that uh, there's that inside and the outside, and and you're you're being attacked, you're being threatened and assaulted, you know, invaded in some ways. So I thought that was very ama- it's kind of amazing that one because mm-hmm. of course it, it's it's mimicking what she's doing, which is going inside a house mm-hmm. just as this scent is coming into her and causing her to talk to gasp and mm-hmm. things like that. She's mm-hmm. also going into this toxic place mm-hmm. right so it's really quite amazing yeah. Sharon, do you want to pick up on that Yes,
5: that's um uh it's always so amazing to hear other people like Nancy and Amy talk about. And you, Karis, talk about my poem um, because I, you know, I didn't know all that was there. But but anyway, it's um, not all that. But but that um, but that there is this internal kind of machinery of it that that is working to say something I was not able to express otherwise or wouldn't have, um, and yet it's. Um, In its own way, articulates a situation more clearly and sensorily than maybe otherwise or in another form of writing or speaking. For me, the poem is um, very much of a time and a place. And I mention a date there 1967, 68, when everything was about drugs and politics. And there, I had both in my house, though I wasn't really that involved in either. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and, and this this sense of of threat from both inside and outside, um, I think, is very much um, part of the kind of uh, near far or or closeness or claustrophobia or something of of the poem. There doesn't seem to be any escape, and we were talking about Persephone and um uh the the in the in the poem, if the speaker is a Persephone kind of figure going home to a quote unquote bluebeard or Plutonic uh figure, uh, then um then it is her abandonment by her mother uh to be um um, you know, kind of um trapped when the gate closes right and and there she is, um uh, so it's um I think a poem that really does a lot of things um and um yeah,
2: Sharon, you talked about the threat from the inside but mm-hmm. also the threat from the outside mm-hmm. um can we go can we go to the narks? the mm-hmm. narks parked outside mm-hmm. in the tan colored Buick, and then later we have the image of the dark forms of the police. Uh, tilting wristwatches to streetlights—that was very real in the '60s, right? Yes, that it was. presence of narks. Yes. Um, can you unpack that for listeners? Like, what
5: what is a narc, and what and, are they doing? Um, they the narks. Uh, we called them NARCs, but they were the narcotics department of the police. The house we were living in had been a drug house. We didn't know that when we rented it, but soon became apparent when people kept coming to the door. Um, and uh, we'd have to say, no, the people who are here have moved away. And, um, there, you know, in those days, there was a lot of police harassment of um, drug users and drug dealers, if harassment is a, the right term, um, because it was a, a kind of a panicky time. And... Um, so we noticed the um the car, what do you call it? The the car that isn't a obvious police car, but we could tell that these two guys, you know, were practically out of, you know, Elliot Ness <coughs> or something, you know, with sort of hats on and collars turned up, you know, kind of sitting outside the house week after week. They did end up raiding us. Uh there was a terrible crash and clamor one morning downstairs and they came barging in and And they did indeed go down to Jamie Reed's apartment, and um, he came up later and said, oh, they just left when I told them I was a Marxist-Leninist and we didn't believe in doing drugs. (laughs) And for us, it wasn't a matter of belief. We just sort of weren't into it, so we didn't have anything to hide. But it was still a terrifying, um, uh, terrifying uh, experience. So, yeah, it was very very much a poem of its time. Um, there was that shadow side of the 60s, of the, you know, 67, 68, and um, historians talk about that, um, you know, where things just started going kind of ugly. Um, and um, we just happened to be sort of uh, in the, that time, at that place, in that house, and it, it all kind of came together. So. Yeah,
4: it it does give the poem this this political feel, mm-hmm. you know that that sense of the of the police state, and uh, the Leninist books. Mm-hmm. I, I I love that image because I had a friend who taught Russian history, and she had a whole set of Lenin, the collected works of Lenin, in her tiny little apartment, and it is such an opp- it's such an oppressive set of books. It's huge. There's so many of them. Dark covers, mm-hmm. and like like in the basement of this house, you have this oppressive kind yeah. of torture chamber, police yeah. state sort yes, of exactly. core. So that's what this this poem has that really dark, threatening quality. Mm-hmm. So this person, you know, our, your your persona here, going mm-hmm. into this place the bluebeard the hades the torture chamber the, the police state the <laughs> yeah. the narcs policing on the outside the wasp policing mm. on the outside mm. it, it's a very horrifying poem it's very gothic and dark yeah. and scary Yeah,
2: yeah i'm struck too by something that amy said earlier about how like the kind of two levels that are operating in the poem and i think also in the fire which you're studying where you have the kind of mythological level and then the very, um, mm-hmm. you know, biographical level, if you will, that's that's grounded in in real the real life. Um, what so the would it be fair to say one of the governing senses in this poem is smell? It's called chrysanthemum mm-hmm. perfume. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask each of you if there's a kind of sonic moment or s- some kind of sonic resonance that you detect in this poem or in the reading that we were listening to, either. Um, Sharon, your reading just now, or the archival reading—how does sound figure in this poem?
4: I, I love the opening of this poem because the, of the, the diction is so clearly rooting us into this descent to the under. The, the word "under," the the X-ray, the torch, the night—everything's dragging us down into this darkness. And I and I was i'm struck on the printed page how the first word is so and that's a a line by itself then there's this comma and it drops down to the second line so it's actually like a step where we go down into the poem and so i began listening for that you know does sharon do that with her voice when she reads it and i think she does right i think she does and i think that that um you know that just shows that how the, her again, her voice maps onto this movement very beautifully. And I noticed also when you were reading it. I did notice it in the recording, the original 86 recording, but when you read it this time, you became very rhythmic mm. as you were reading it. Mm. and that made me feel as if you we were stepping with you down that path in a way that um, you know again sort of drags us into this. Dark place. So that's kind of my mm-hmm. oral experience. I yeah,
2: think of it. I'm going to pick up on that actually, Sharon, and like move that over to you and ask you a slightly different question, which is that um, how how do you feel that you perform this poem differently in this reading compared to what we had just heard?
5: Okay, I it just occurred to me when Nancy said that very helpful um, had that very helpful perception of the this one being more rhythmic because I feel. Um, greater confidence and um, a more intimate setting. Whereas in the classroom, you don't want to bore anybody, and you want to kind of... I'd already read a fairly long poem, and so now I'm going to read another page long poem. And even though they're kind of connected, I think I, I kind of wanted to get through it and on to something else. Maybe I was sensing that I was going too much into something and I needed to move on or getting some kind of um, uh, um, gestures or feedback or something from, from the class, or I won't say from Warren, um, although knowing Warren, he was always so eager to go on to the next thing. And uh, let's talk some more about something else. <laughs> and so I wouldn't, I, I, it, it's interesting to think that that might have been something um, hastening my my getting through the poem. Yeah,
2: um, yeah. Warren always was so much kind of energy, energy and yeah. m- you know movement. Um, Amy, can I bring that over to you and ask you: Are there sonic elements of the poem that strike you, or um, kind of maybe a particular um, change in the reading style that you noticed just now?
3: Yeah, um, it was. I loved hearing Sharon read it today because I've listened to this recording like a lot of times and sort of have gotten used to the way it sounds and sort of the way that it flows between other moments of the conversation versus today. And sort of to note back to what we were just saying in the fuller length version of this recording, there is a moment where Warren does not know what time the class ends. So he is like, do we have 20 minutes or do we have half an hour? And then he says something and then a student in the back is like, you have till 1220 or whatever. So it could be quite true that there was like a maybe a feeling of you were rushed or, yeah.
2: Um, I don't want to rush us to the end. I want to ask um, each of you for a final thought on this poem. Is there something that we haven't talked about that you are just dying to talk about with this poem, uh, with the recording? or about the, even the
5: introduction? I wanted to, um, this the line struck me here in the one, two, three, in the fourth stanza, uh, the clever line break, <laughs> at uh, grabbing like dry hands at my breath as if they knew what I wanted, new line, to refuse. And so that kind of ambivalence of um, which, uh, Persephone may or may not have had toward her um, abduction um, is is there uh, in in the ambiguity of that that I wanted to refuse. So, but I st- I still keep going into the house right.
4: Which I think is, leads me to something that I think is really important to me about your work, Sharon, is that, and I was, uh, I've I've told you this before, that I first met you when I was a young woman with two little children in Calgary, um, running this uh, the Calgary Creative Reading Series. I'd taken it over from Bill Kinsella and, um, you know, really knew nothing about Canadian poetry, but I was kind of hungry for it. So I would, whenever there was the Governor General shortlist announced, I would go and into a bookstore and sort of illicitly read the poetry books to see who I'd want to invite for the next reading and um, I love this book and I and I invited you there and that's the first time I met you and I and I felt that you were this model of a poet that I wanted to be I wanted to be a Canadian poet like you mm-hmm. and um, I think that in some ways this poem um, struck me when I read it how um, how vulnerable the woman is in here and the the sheer maleness of this world that you're creating and how dangerous it is for a young woman and I think that um, you know you you are so important to me and I think to many other Canadian poets because you know you're of that generation that showed um, young women at the time in the 80s that you can be a poet too and you were just such an important figure. You know, for that, you were just a, a role model. You were a, a, a torch, a torchlight <laughs> in the darkness.
2: Um, Amy, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you similarly, do you have a final a final thought for me to pick up on Nancy, um, Nancy's observation or um, thinking about maybe teaching this poem? Because I know you want to be a teacher.
3: Um, yeah, I do have one thought about the final line and no mother anywhere. And... Um, what I like about this line, or sort of strikes me, is the whole sort of motive of Persephone and that underlying theme. That if you sort of went through the poem reading without that in mind at all, and we're just imagining the scene and the narcs, then you got to the end, and then that doesn't really make sense. And then it sort of prompts a further investigation into sort of the meaning in the, of the poem.
2: Yeah, I want to bring that back to Sharon. Do you want to talk about that final line
5: for us? Um, it, I, it was a line, I think, that really came out of my unconsciousness mm. <laughs> or unconscious. Um, it's only in in later years uh, that I have had to face the the, the repercussions in my life of... Um, a mother who was uh, very absent, owing to illness and various other things, and also there was a point in um, my um, writing in where, as a, a young woman writer in the mid '60s, there weren't that many foremothers that that were um, evident. You really had to search, and and they weren't just around. And um, I think I I found one in a way, aesthetically speaking, in Phyllis Webb, and um, that really helped kind of propel me into other places. Just having that that um, link with her, um, but um, yeah. So I think the mother is it's it's historical. It's um, it's in terms of poetics, and it's also personal and familial.
2: We often talk about um, the tapes, this box of tapes that Warren um, gave to Jody Castricano, who gave to me, etc. As a kind of com- their community building, and they've been community building both in terms of how they've traveled, but also the kind of work that they're doing. I and mean, we hear that on the, this particular tape when Warren says, "You know, there's this lineage. There are these thirty poets who are close." Um, I'm struck again, by something, you know, Nancy, that you said earlier about that connection between you and Sharon, but also the connection that's in the room here between from you, Sharon, to Nancy, to me, to Amy, as teachers of poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really grateful for all of you, to all of you for joining us today. I want to ask you, um, as we, as we sign out, um, for a shout out. Um, And Amy, I'm going to start with you a shout out to a particular book or event or thing that you'd like listeners to know about.
3: Yes, I'm going to give a shout out to Alicia Rosnow's new novel called Little Fortress. Um, It came out late 2019, and it is super wonderful.
2: Awesome. Thank you. And we're going to provide a link to that on
4: our site. Uh, Nancy? Well,
3: I'd like to put a shout-out to our very
4: first annual Sharon Thiessen Lecture here at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Um, The Creative Writing Program, you know, wants to honour our first professor, Sharon Thiessen. Um, we've been thinking about it for a while. And we thought the best thing to do would be to get a writer to come once a year and talk about poetics and con- contemporary writing. So the very first one will be on, I think, Thursday, March the 17th. I hope that's the right date. Didn't write it down. I think that uh, the first one will be Mar- Thursday, March 17th, and John Lent, who's our writer in residence, uh, will be giving the, uh, the lecture. So we're absolutely thrilled. And so am I. I can't, uh,
5: that's uh, such a such an honor. Um, well, I'll give a shout-out to my pinecone workshops. Um, for now, I've suspended the day-long retreat workshops, and I'm planning to host a series of sort of two- to three-hour living room readings at the house, at my house where I have the uh, pinecone workshops. And interestingly enough, I was thinking of inviting Laisha to um, To do the first one, and what I would like her to talk about is how she sustained, uh, how she sustained a voice for this book over nine years of research and writing. Um, so uh, that will be posted somewhere when yeah. it happens.
2: And we'll provide a link to it on our site as well. Okay. Um, I want to thank all of you. It's so um, it's such a rare opportunity to bring. Um, different generations of women together in a recording like this and doing this kind of interpretive work together. Um, and it's such a privilege to listen in the archive with you. Um, Sharon, I want to thank you for permission for putting this online, and also to the Tallman Estate for permission as well to put this, uh, put this out there on the world wide web. You've been listening to episode three of Soundbox Signals with a recording by Sharon Thiessen from 1986. You can find full-length recordings on our website at soundbox.ok.ubc.ca. I'm your host, Kara Shear, and I'll see you for episode four.